Well, well, we will be in John 19. Last week we considered the title that was placed above the head of Jesus on the cross. The saying read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Remember that it was written in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. Those were the three predominant languages spoken in that area in that day in the first century. But I made application how those three languages speak to all of mankind in every age. Hebrew representing the religious man, Greek representing the philosophical man, and Latin representing the legal man. And in Christ, all three groups find their answer with this king who died on the cross. The religious man has found righteousness in Christ. The philosophical man has found wisdom in Christ. And the legal man has found justice in Christ. And so what we find is Christ is the answer for all mankind. Put aside your religion. The blood has been offered. The price has been paid. Put aside your philosophical pursuits. Christ is the wisdom of God. Put aside your legalism. Christ is the justice of God. The just has suffered for the unjust. Therefore, whosoever will, let him take of the water of life freely. And we are seeing that take place out of every nation, kindred, tribe, tongue, people. Hallelujah, I'm in that group this morning. 1 Corinthians 1.18 says, For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved it is the power of God. Let go of religion. Let go of philosophies. And let go of your legalism. And go to Christ. Amen. When you do, you'll see He is the power of God. For this week, we'll begin in John chapter 19 again, verses 23 and 24. The Bible says, Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took His garments and made four parts to every soldier apart, and also His coat. Now the coat was without seam, woven from the top throughout. They said, Therefore among themselves, let us not rend it, but cast lots for it, whose it shall be, that the Scripture might be fulfilled, which saith, They parted my raiment among them, and for my vesture they did cast lots. These things, therefore, the soldiers did. Now, all four gospel accounts make mention of the parting of Jesus' garments and the casting of lots, but John's account certainly gives us the most detail of this event. Only John tells us that Jesus' coat here was without seam. We also find that the garments were being divided into four parts. This tells us that there were four soldiers assigned to the crucifixion of Jesus. We see in another gospel account that after they had crucified Jesus and parted His garments, it makes a special note to us that they sat down and watched Him there. Well, that might be a message for another time, but these four soldiers were stationed there during the crucifixion. They had to make sure the bodies weren't messed with while upon the cross and things like that. And in some cases, they got tired of waiting. They would actually start a fire there at the foot of the cross and let the smoke come up into the... Uh, the person being crucified, so he would suffocate all the more quick. Um, so it depended how long they wanted to wait. And of course, we know here it's a high Sabbath day and they would break the legs of those who hadn't died yet. But when these soldiers were assigned to the crucifixion, they would get to leave with clothes from the man they crucified. It was a perk of this detail. And that may sound odd in our day, right? Who wants the clothes of a dead man? Who wants bloody clothes off a dead man? Well, if you understood the day in which they live, 
you'd understand that it was a big deal to own clothing. People didn't have clothes for all kinds of various occasions like we have today. You can look over a crowd at church and almost determine what season we're in by how the ladies dress. <laughs> right? Oh, it's fall. Everybody's dressed in their fall colors, whatever. And so you've got all these outfits and all the rest, and men don't wear outfits, okay? All right, I just wanted to make that clear. But ladies have their outfits and all the rest. And, and so, you know, you've got your workout clothes, your work clothes, your church clothes, your lounging around clothes, your whatever clothes. We've got all kind of, we're, we're so blessed today, I guess is what I'm saying. And so we don't quite understand maybe the mindset here of, of being, uh, having a benefit of taking a dead man's clothes home. But um, there wasn't an, an abundance of outfits is what I'm saying. Uh, I remember we were watching the Andy Griffith show here recently, and there I don't know how many of you have seen the episode where Barney gets evicted from his leased room because he had been cooking in the room. And I remember when Andy came in, he gave him a tour of this room, and he opens up his closet, and there's one suit in there. That was it. That was the only thing hanging up was one suit, and it was his salt and pepper suit, Amen. <laughs> And, uh, or it might have been his police uniform, whatever he was wearing. I mean, that's all you ever saw him in. And then when he's leaving and, and he's mad, he just opens up a drawer and takes his clothes. I mean, that's all he had. And that was in the 1960s. And we can see how much times have changed, amen? I, I, I was thinking about this. I became enamored with the history of closets. <laughs> Do you want to hear it? Yes. Okay, now it's your fault. You said yes. Because when I did this in the first service, I kind of felt like they were thinking, what in the world are you doing? And I was interested in it because I saw that it actually started with the Romans. And they had these trunks that they called, where's my notes here? I'm so far out of whack. Armeriums. Armeriums, something like that. And they used these trunks to transport their weapons from camp to camp to keep them safe. And then, long story short, these developed into armoires. These upright trunks, if you will, with doors and drawers. And they would use those as armories. They would store their weapons. They became tool sheds. And eventually somebody thought, I can put clothes in there. Well, I found this very interesting. That Did you know the clothes hanger wasn't invented until the 1860s? <laughs> I don't know why this fascinates me. Like, How could nobody have anything to hang up before 1860? Nobody had clothes. And then in the 1870s, uh, somebody decided, you know what? We can put a clothes rod in the wardrobe. We can use the hangers on a clothes rod. So that was a big advancement. Then the 1880s, the nation's first closets were designed specifically for clothes. And even then, it was only for the wealthy. Clothes, uh, closets continued to evolve until the 1950s. There was an explosion of closets and houses. And they had these things called walk-in closets. <laughs> yeah. Some people say, I, f I found this very fascinating, that the move from the city to the suburbs was because houses started to have closets. And the old buildings in the cities didn't because they were so old. I don't know. I, just interesting to me, okay? And, and so I, I got to looking. What's the largest closet in America? 3,000 square feet. Three stories high. $500,000 to build. And you can go on YouTube and let the lady take you through the tour of her closet. Um, yeah. Anyway. Women today often have walk-in closets full of nothing to wear. Isn't that right? And in some cases, women have more than one closet full of nothing to wear. And that's the history of closets. You're welcome. 
You're welcome. L- listen, you're not going to get this kind of detail at other churches. <laughs> I don't know if you ever just come in here and say, I am so blessed to be a part of this church. Anyway, you know my policy. If I study it, you got to listen to it. Um, well, that rabbit trail was simply to tell you that it may seem odd that these soldiers are gambling for Jesus' clothes in our day because we have been blessed with so much. We have so much plenty today. In the first century, clothes were expensive to obtain, and people didn't have lots of them. And this is why it was such a big deal when you read in your Old Testament that somebody would rend their garments being in grief. That was a big deal. Um, we'd have to rend our car today, right? And so to rend your clothes was a, was a big deal. And so here's these Roman soldiers, and they take Jesus' clothes, which might have included sandals, inner garments, outer garments, uh, some type of girdle, uh, maybe a headdress of some type, who knows. Um, but that was kind of the attire back in the day. And they would have taken these garments and they would have begun to divide them among themselves as a bonus. The garments were often made out of patches, Clothes were patched together because, again, you just didn't have an abundance. And so when you came to these articles of clothing that were patched together, they would divide those up so that everybody could take pieces of the garment home, maybe mend their own clothes, have them ready when something were to tear or something like that. And so they're dividing these up among themselves, and all of a sudden they come to this seamless coat. Garments were often made... Uh, with the seam. I think all of us here today have garments, we're wearing garments with a, th- a seam. I mean, you can just imagine how having a seamless coat in that day was a big deal. How expensive this may have been. I've always wondered, who made the coat? Wouldn't it be nice to know? I mean, was it Mary, his mother? Was it maybe Mary Magdalene being grateful? Uh, who knows what, uh, where he got this from, but he's got this seamless coat. And we see that it's woven from the top throughout. It would have been more difficult to make, therefore be more expensive to purchase. And they say, let us not rend it, but cast lots for it. They recognize the value of this garment, and they dare not tear it in pieces. So they divide it, or instead of dividing it among themselves, they cast lots to see whose it would be. Now, these men had no clue about Psalm twenty-two, eighteen. They didn't know that prophecy was being fulfilled here. They didn't know that David had penned, they parted my garments among them and cast lots upon my vesture. They just saw a garment that was worth having. John records for us that this was done, that the Scripture might be fulfilled. How amazing is God's Word? That this many years, hundreds of years ahead of time, God would foretell of this event, and now it's coming to pass. I want to tell you this morning, you can trust God's Word. Amen. Amen. I know it doesn't fit our culture. I know it doesn't fit the norms of our day, but it is still eternal. It is still everlasting, and it still works in 2021. You can trust the Word of God. And yet, these unbelieving uh, Roman soldiers, they had no idea they were fulfilling Scripture, and yet God put it in their heart that they would not tear this garment but that they would uh, cast lots to see who it would be. God's making sure this is coming to pass. Now, I thought, as I envisioned the scene this day, here's Jesus on a cross, dying for mankind, and there's four soldiers at His feet gambling for His clothes. Can you imagine? I mean, talk about being desensitized to some things. This was just a normal day in the office for them. 
I don't think many of us would find that scene too appealing. And yet, how many of us have things in our life that if they were made known, they wouldn't look too appealing? But we've just become desensitized to the whole thing, and we figure nobody knows. Isn't, isn't it interesting? Could you imagine being the man who acquired this garment? As Jesus is on the cross and he, he sees this scene right in front of him, he prays to his Father, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And here's this man. He's going to be walking around the city with this seamless coat, and I can see somebody coming up to him saying, Hey, man, that's a nice garment. Where'd you get that? I just got it off some dead guy over the last crucifixion I oversaw. Not knowing the importance, not knowing the weight of what he was wearing, not understanding the man that it came off of. Can you imagine that? But I wonder today how many are walking around with the garments of Christianity. But they really have no idea what it all means. They've never known the Christ of the cross. And I wonder... Are there some here today who know how to look like you've met Jesus, but you've never really met Him? Now, you got the seamless coat. You look the part. But do you really know Him at all? Oh, this cross necklace, I just, something my grandmother gave me. My church, that's just somewhere my parents make me attend. I don't know much about it. A Bible, yeah, I've got one of those. I, I just really, I don't read it. But I know what you're talking about. Maybe you've got articles of Jesus in your life, but it's just business as usual for you here today. Listen, don't get me wrong. I'm glad you're here. Amen. But are you here because this is your tradition? Or are you here because you want to meet with God? You see, you can have church and the things of Jesus in your life because that's your culture and still have no relationship with Him. And maybe all of this this morning doesn't mean a whole lot to you. I want to tell you, God wants you to know Him personally. What a blessing that the Creator God would want to interact with us just as a friend to a friend. Listen, it's time to stop looking the part. And it's time to have a relationship with Christ. And then you'll understand what it means. Amen. It's interesting how John, while under the inspiration of the Holy Ghost, he makes special reference to this coat without seam. None of the others do this. It's there something here beyond the fulfillment of Psalm twenty-two eighteen, 18 because obviously the psalm is fulfilled from what the other gospel accounts had penned. Why is this detail given, which really doesn't affect the fulfillment of the prophecy itself? Well, I believe every word in the Bible is there on purpose. Amen. God cares about every jot, every tittle. There are no wasted words. So what can we glean from the significance of this detail about Jesus' seamless coat being mentioned here by John at the crucifixion of Christ? Well, I believe there are two main applications that we can draw from this. There may be more, but these are the two that God laid on my heart. You don't have to turn to this one. We'll turn to the next one. But in 1 Kings chapter 11, you'll read how Solomon loved many strange women. God said, don't do that. Don't go after the lost women. Don't go after these Gentile women. Don't go after the pagans. That's still good advice today. Don't go after that, because if you do, those women are going to turn your heart. 
God understood the power that women have over men. And he says, don't do it. They're going to turn your heart and they're going to turn you after false gods. And sure enough, as Solomon grew older, that's what we find him doing. He built high places for his wife's gods. The Bible says he even offered sacrifice to them. The Bible says that his heart was not perfect with the Lord his God. And one of the saddest statements, I believe, you'll read, especially because it's about Solomon, is this, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord. Imagine that. The wisest man that's ever lived on civil matters, outside of Christ, of course, and yet he did evil in the sight of the Lord. Well, that got God upset with Solomon. And God said to Solomon, Wherefore the Lord said unto Solomon, For as much as this is done of thee, and thou hast not kept my covenant and my statutes which I have commanded thee, I will surely rend the kingdom from thee, and will give it to thy servant. But God said He was going to wait until after Solomon died, and then He would rend the kingdom out of the hand of Solomon's son, Rehoboam. God would divide the kingdom in the two houses. There would be ten tribes to the north called the house of Israel, there would be two tribes to the uh, south known as the tribe of Judah. One would be ruled by Jeroboam to the north and Rehoboam to the south. And then in 1 Kings 11, the Bible says in verses 29 through 31, And it came to pass at that time when Jeroboam went out of Jerusalem that the prophet Ahijah the Shilonite found him in the way, and he clad himself with a new garment, and they too were alone in the field. And Ahijah caught the new garment that was on him and rent it into twelve pieces. And he said to Jeroboam, Take thee ten pieces, for thus saith the Lord, the God of Israel, Behold, I will rend the kingdom out of the hand of Solomon and will give ten tribes to thee. The kingdom of Israel being rent into two different houses was pictured by Ahijah the prophet rending this new garment into twelve pieces. Well, that's great. How does that relate to Jesus on the cross in this seamless robe? Well, God had promised David that his kingdom would be established forever. 2 Samuel 7.16 says, And thine house and thy kingdom shall be established forever. Thy throne shall be established forever. In Psalm 89.35-37, the Bible says, Once I have sworn by my holiness that I will not lie unto David... His seed shall endure forever, and His throne as the sun before me. It shall be established forever as the moon and as a faithful witness in heaven. Clearly, this could not find its fulfillment in Solomon or Rehoboam or anybody that descended after that. Amen. There is no king in Israel. There is no throne. There is no eternal kingdom that descended uh, in, in respect of what we would think in an earthly kingdom. And, and they're so excited in Jesus' day that God's going to restore the kingdom. And so what we find is somebody else has to fulfill this. There has to be somebody who's eternal that can sit on the throne forever. Amen. <laughs> Amen. There's got to be somebody else that is going to uh, reign and rule in this kingdom. There has to be an eternal throne. Therefore, somebody eternal needs to sit on it. Isaiah 9, 7 says of Jesus, of the increase of His government and peace, there shall be no end upon the throne of David and upon His kingdom to order it, to establish it with judgment and justice from henceforth even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts 
will perform this. And remember what the angel Gabriel said to Mary. Behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb and bring forth a son and shalt call his name Jesus. He shall be great and shall be called the son of the highest. And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David. And he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there shall be no end. And after Jesus had resurrected, Peter is preaching over in Acts chapter 2. And he says, Men and brethren, let me freely speak unto you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his sepulcher is with us unto this day. Therefore, being a prophet, and knowing that God has sworn with an oath to him, that of the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne. Peter went on to say, This Jesus hath God raised up, wherefore we are all witnesses. And then Peter explains where God had raised Jesus up to, therefore being by the right hand of God exalted. God raised Jesus up to sit upon the throne. Amen. In Acts chapter 2, verses 34 through 36, it says, For David is not ascended into the heavens, but he saith himself, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand until I make thy foes thy footstool. Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus whom ye crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now let's apply this to Jesus on the cross and these soldiers that are casting lots for this seamless coat. They would not rend it. The picture is as clear as it can be. Jesus' kingdom will have no end. It will never be divided. The Bible says that a kingdom divided against itself cannot stand. And I want you to know this morning that those of us who are in Christ, we are part of a kingdom that will never be divided. It will never come to an end. And we serve the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Hallelujah. This is Christ's kingdom. The Bible says in Hebrews 1.8, But unto the Son He saith, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of Thy kingdom. We have come unto Mount Zion, that is, the heavenly city of Jerusalem. It's everlasting. It's eternal. It will never be rent. It will never be thrown down. Hallelujah, what a Savior. I hope you're in that kingdom today. The Bible says the kingdom of God is within you. Love, joy, and peace in the Holy Ghost. Well, that's one significant picture here, but this other one is probably a little more well-known about Jesus' seamless coat not being torn. I want us to quickly consider this with the time we have remaining. If you'd go back to Mark chapter 14 with me, please. Mark chapter 14, we'll read verses 55 through 64. And so where we're going to pick this up at is we're going back to the trial of Jesus. Jesus has been arrested. He's been taken before Annas. He's now standing before Caiaphas, the high priest. And in Mark chapter 14, look at what the Bible says here beginning in verse 55. And the chief priest and all the council sought for witness against Jesus to put him to death and found none. For many bear false witness against him, but their witness agreed not together. And there arose certain and bear false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and within three days I will build another made without hands. But neither so did their witness agree together. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, saying, 
Answerest thou nothing? What is it which these witness against thee? But he held his peace and answered nothing. And again the high priest asked him and said unto him, Art thou the Christ, the Son of the blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And ye shall see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest rent his clothes and saith, What need we any further witnesses? Ye have heard the blasphemy. What think ye? They all condemned him to be guilty of death. Over in Exodus chapter 28 and Exodus 39, we learn that the high priest wore a woven robe. Both Jesus' coat and the high priest's robe are said to be woven, and therefore they were both seamless. And so I believe that this information is given to us to draw our attention to this comparison. In Leviticus chapter 10, you'll most likely remember the account where Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, the high priest, they offered strange fire before the Lord. And when they did so, the Bible says the Lord sent out a fire and devoured them. And in the humor of the Bible, it says, and there they died. I would say so, amen. Well, Moses said unto Aaron, this is that the Lord spake, saying, I will be sanctified in them that come nigh me, and before all the people I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. And in verse 6 of Leviticus chapter 10, we read, And Moses said unto Aaron, and unto Eleazar, and unto Ithamar his sons, Uncover not your heads, neither rend your clothes, lest ye die, and lest wrath come upon all the people. You'll find a similar warning over in Leviticus 21.10. We find that the high priest was not to rend his clothes. These high priestly garments were a picture of their sanctification. and They were to operate in their office being sanctified. They were to be the mediators between God and man. And they must be sanctified in doing so. In addition, God said, I will be sanctified in those that come nigh to me. Why? Because he, He's going to get the glory. Their garments were extremely important in the eyes of God and man. Therefore, they were never to rend their garments. The high priest's garments pointed to Christ. They were a picture of God's righteousness and holiness which can never be torn. But what do we find happening here in Mark 14.63? Then the high priest rent his clothes. Now there's great debate as to whether or not in this particular setting if he would have had his high priest's garments on, to me, it matters not. The picture remains the same and the application is the same. I have my opinion. I'll let you get your own. But I believe when Caiaphas rent his garments, listen now if I lost you, when Caiaphas rent his garments, it was picturing the dying of the old Levitical priesthood. And like Leviticus 10.6 warned, wrath did come upon the people in A.D. 70. Now Jesus, He came to establish the new covenant and to usher in an eternal priesthood. Hebrews 10.9 says, Then said he, Lo, I come to do thy will, O God. He taketh away the first, that he may establish the second. Hebrews 8.13 says, In that he saith a new covenant, he hath made the first old. Now that which decayeth and waxeth old is ready to vanish away. 
Jesus' seamless coat represented the office that he would hold as our great high priest. And as our great high priest, he gave his life upon the cross. And now there is only one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And we'll see later on that when Jesus cries out, it is finished, that God would rent the veil in the temple from top to bottom in two. And in doing so, God would open up the way into the holiest of all by the blood of Christ. We who could not come to Christ can now come boldly before His throne. Whoop! The Bible says in Hebrews 10, 19-22, "...having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus." by a new and living way which He hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, through His flesh. And having an high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. And now, man can come into God's presence based upon the righteousness of Christ. Amen. When these soldiers looked upon this seamless coat, they did not want to tear it. And God was picturing for us how Jesus' priesthood will never come to an end. Hebrews 7.24 says, But this man, but this man, because he continueth ever, hath an unchangeable priesthood. His righteousness can never be torn. It's not about our righteousness. It's not about our holiness. We cannot make ourselves holy. And all of our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. And this is why we find the Bible telling us over in Romans 13, 14, but put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ. Make no provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. When you put on the Lord Jesus Christ, you know what that means? It means you're putting on a garment. That's the picture. The Bible says over in Ephesians 4, 24, and that ye put on the new man which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. So I believe what we find pictured in Jesus' seamless coat, not being torn, is that Christ came to establish an earthly, or excuse me, an eternal kingdom and an eternal priesthood. It can never be divided. And His priesthood can never come to an end. And Psalm 110.4 says, The Lord has sworn and will not repent, Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. What does that mean? Well, that was a prophecy of Christ there in Psalm 110. And Melchizedek, you'll find, was both a king and a priest. The Bible says in Genesis 14, 18, And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought forth bread and wine, and he was the priest of the Most High God. Jesus is now both our priest and our king after the order of Melchizedek. Have you entered into Christ's kingdom? Have you looked at our nation around us and thought, is there any place I can go that is sane and normal? Not upon this earth. But there is a kingdom that Jesus said you can have within you. And listen, He's coming again. He'll set up His kingdom one day. He'll straighten it all out. Hallelujah. But in the meantime, you can have peace with God. And you can find calm in this world of turmoil. It's insane what's happening out there. Isn't it? Yeah. Listen, you old timers should have said, oh yeah. <laughs> I remember when a family was a family. Right. Anyway, l- l- listen, I-, I don't know if you're a part of Christ's kingdom or not, 
but his kingdom will never be divided. Is Christ your great high priest? Christ made the way for you to enjoy both his kingdom and his priesthood through his blood. His sacrifice on the cross and his subsequent resurrection and ascension has confirmed the new covenant and those in Christ can have their sins washed away and he can be your eternal high priest. We can serve the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And I can tell you this morning boldly, not not braggadociously on my part, but I can tell you with all confidence, Jesus is my king and he is my priest. I hope you can say the same thing. Do you know that? And listen, if you do know that, let me ask you this. Are you serving the King of Kings? Maybe all this is just routine for you. You did well just to put on your garments and make it to church. Amen. Are you serving Him? Is He your sovereign Lord? He is my King and He's my priest. Is He yours? I'd ask you to come to Him in faith today. Would you pray with me, please?